Alright, our passage is Acts chapter 12. We're covering the first five verses today. Next week, we're going to cover verses 6 through 19. So please write that down and be sure to read through it in the week ahead. Come to church with some familiarity of it. Your discussions will be much more lively and enjoyable. And I just, I got to say, these next three sermons, you all, are very much one big sermon. These next three sermons, these next three passages, are very much one big sermon. And in this passage, what you see is a tyrant. You see a horrible ruler. And you see the people of God. And we're going to see that the tyrant does things one way and the people of God respond in a way that is pleasing to God. We're going to see the evil in the tyrant. And we're going to see God's people handle things very, very well in the midst of that tyranny. And in addition to this, we're going to see God's judgment of the tyrant. We're going to see God's judgment of the tyrant. And I don't need to tell you what's going to happen to the people of God. We know what's been happening to the people of God in the book of Acts. They've been prospering and multiplying and doing very, very well. Very, very well. And that is certainly exactly how this chapter will end. So what we're going to see in these next three weeks is though powerful forces come against the church, we are marching onward. We are doing the things that God wants us to do. And no earthly ruler, no force of hell can come against God and His church when His church is doing The things of God. The church is a victorious people. You aren't used to seeing that, are you? But that's who we are. That is our future. That is what we're doing. That is where we are going. We are a victorious people in the midst of many enemies. I haven't always believed that, but the last two and a half years I've done a lot of repenting of that. We are a victorious people. And no matter who or what comes against us or how many, we keep going forward. And you know, at the end of the book, at the end of history, who's there and who's doing well? We are. We are. So with all that being said, I'm going to read Acts 12, 1 through 5. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's read this individually for four or five minutes, and then we'll discuss it for 15 to 20 minutes. And I pray that the Lord may bless the reading and discussion of His Word. 
government. The Bible talks a lot about tyranny. The Bible talks a lot about oppression and how nations should be ordered. You all, I used to believe the church should stay out of politics. I don't believe that anymore. I quit believing that about two and a half years ago. So I'm not going to bring up anything today that I don't think is warranted from Scripture. I believe everything I'm going to share with you today can be found in Scripture. And I don't have time today, you don't have time today, for me to point to every single verse that I could possibly point to, to teach about politics and how the church should interact with those in a place of political authority. So first off, let's look specifically at Herod. Who is Herod? You all, I want to tell you that this man has one of the most complicated family trees in all of church history. In all of history, I mean. He has one of the most complicated family trees in all of history. Do you all remember King Herod that um, had power when Jesus was born? The wise men went to visit him and he wanted to kill the baby that was going to be born king of the Jews. And the wise men were warned in a dream not to go back to this king, but they went another way and left the country to go back home. And King Herod felt betrayed, and he was upset that he couldn't kill the new king that was being born, so he slaughtered likely thousands of babies, baby boys, at that time. That Herod was this man's grandfather. So he comes from a very wicked line of kings. Let's talk about this Herod's dad. This Herod's dad had John the Baptist's head cut off and served on a platter. This Herod's dad presided over one of five or six trials that Jesus had the night before he was executed, on the, the night before he was crucified on the cross. So... There's not much good going on here. Some of this Herod's children will appear later on in the book of Acts, chapters like 20 through 26. We'll find out what some of his descendants are up to a generation later. You all, this man killed the apostle James. Do you remember the day when Jesus was choosing his disciples and he was walking in a fishing village and there were two men, James and John, they were sons of Zebedee, and Jesus said, hey... You two come with me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's this James right here, you all. That's this James that was just killed for his faith. This is the second time in the book of Acts that we hear the mention of a specific Christian being killed for their faith. The first time was Stephen. Well, here James is killed. And what is Herod's motive, you all? What is... Herod's motive. There was a certain group of people that he needed to keep happy. Okay? Sound like any politicians you know? I am sad to say that it appears that this is a normal way of people with power in the government, in the state specifically. When I say state, I mean the civil sphere, nation included. You all, ain't nothing changed. Human nature's the same. And history shows that it's very, very hard to find someone who will rule with justice and equity for all. So, 
This Herod, he was a people pleaser. You all, he was manipulated by the masses. You all, sometimes I'm like this guy. I want to keep people happy. Now, I want to tell you, I don't struggle with that as much as I used to, and I praise the Lord for that. And I think all of us struggle with that a little bit. So here's what I want. I want us to just realize, most of us, maybe not all, probably not all, but most of us, we struggle with this temptation too. But I want to tell you that this man struggled with it to the point where he was willing to kill an innocent man. You all, the Bible doesn't use the word coward very often. I think we see the idea of coward pretty often. But you all, this man is one of the biggest cowards in the Bible, I think. The Bible doesn't use the word coward very often, but one place it does use the word coward is in Revelation 21.8, right, you know, the page before the last page of the book. And the Bible says that the cowardly will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but that they will burn in the lake of fire forever and ever. You all, it is a sin to be cowardly. It is a sin to be motivated to do things for the only reason to keep people happy. Now, I'm not telling you men that you shouldn't do things to keep your wife happy. I ain't tell, I ain't, I'm not talking about that. Y'all know what I'm talking about, and that's not it. Your conscience will tell you when you're guilty of this. So, this man was a coward. I want to ask you another question. What is the biblical role of a king, ruler, president, prime minister, governor, mayor? What is their role that has been assigned to them by God? What does the Bible say about people with political power? I've taught on this a few times in the last two years. If you dig into Romans 13, their purpose, and this is the only purpose I can see for civil government in the Bible, their purpose is to bring the sword or coercive means against those who do evil to protect those who do good. Their role and their purpose is to make sure that the people under their authority who follow the laws and who do good can live a normal life of freedom and can go about their business the way that they please. That is the... Read Romans 13, 1 through 7, y'all. That is the only role I have found in the Scripture for civil government. And anything outside of that is outside of the delegated authority that God, of the authority that God has delegated to them. And so this man, Herod, and the majority of politicians today are doing so much more than they were ever supposed to be doing under the authority of God. So civil authority is to uphold justice in the land, not to overturn it. Civil authority is to make sure that people are treated with equity or fairness, not to play favorites, not to choose who's going to win and who's going to lose. And I could stay there all day long, but I'm going to move on. And I want to tell you that civil government is a necessary institution. You all, the answer to our problems with politicians is not no government. God is not okay with anarchy. God has created rulers and politicians. They have a role and a purpose to serve. But the moment that they step out of that, 
we get guys like Herod doing things like this Herod did. You all, we have a problem today when we think about government. And, and this is all of us. I'm not just talking about those out, out there. You all, when we think about government, most of the time, we only think about the civil realm. When you hear the word government, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Raise your hand if you think Washington or the federal government. If, is that the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about government? So certainly true for some of us, right? I, I, you ever go to Google Dictionary to see what a word means? As my kids go through homeschool, they start using these words I've never heard of. And every once in a while, I'll have to go and <laughs> see, what does that word mean? Well, I looked up the, de- you know, and according to them, government is the governing body of a nation, state, or community. You all, that is a very narrow view of what the word government means. The word government, historically, means so much more than that. And people from other generations have known that the, the government in the political realm was just one area of government. If you go back to Webster's first dictionary in 1828, he defines government like this. He says the government is direction or regulation, control and restraint. So almost 200 years ago, the most popular dictionary probably in all of history defines government as direction Regulation, control, or restraint. You know, so language evolves over time, right? You look at Webster's Dictionary in 1913, and it says this. Government is the act of governing. Notice it hasn't said anything about the civil realm of the state or federal level. So government has to do with the act of governing. It has to do with the exercise of authority. So who, who has authority in here? But you do too, right? Do you have authority over yourself? Some of you have authority over children. Some of you have authority over families. Some of you have authority in your workplace. You have people under you. Some of you kids, you have authority over your pets. <laughs> so... Government has to do with the act of governing. And Webster goes on to say this, It is the exercise of authority, the administration of laws, control, direction, regulation, as civil, church, or family government. So in 1922, I'm sorry, 1913, in one of the most popular dictionaries that ever existed, government has to do with family, It has to do with church and the civil realm. You all, for the most part, our view of government today is way too narrow. We only think about the folks who make laws. We only think about county commissioners. We only think about our president and Congress. But you all, that's just one part of government. You have a government of your own. You have government over yourself. You all, two and a half years ago, we stopped meeting because our governor 
Cooper issued an executive order limiting the size of gatherings throughout the state of North Carolina. We decided to comply because of Romans chapter 13. In over nine years of pastoral ministry, it's the biggest mistake I've ever made. Worst thing I ever did was us not meet during those seven weeks. I did not understand that he had his own realm where he had authority and that I had, Joe and I as elders, have authority over this church. And God has not given Governor Cooper the authority to tell us how or when we should worship. Joe Biden doesn't have that authority. Your favorite congressman doesn't have that authority. Nowhere does anyone have that authority. They have a realm of authority, and we have a realm of authority. And Joe and I as elders, we serve uh, with a very specific role in governing this church. And Roy Cooper has his role in his realm, and Joe Biden has his role in his realm. And you know what? We all need to stay in our lane. Governor Cooper had no jurisdiction over how and when we worshipped because God had not given him that authority. All right, I'm going to talk to everybody here except for my family. Do I have authority over your kids as their parent? Nope. It would be wrong for me to act like their dad, wouldn't it? It would be wrong for me to tell Leighton what to do and expect her to obey unless I was babysitting her, right? It is a bad and evil thing to step outside of your role of authority. But that is what's going on in our world today. You all, the Bible teaches that there are four, maybe five realms of government. There's self-government, there's family government, there's church government, and there's civil government. And maybe even government in the workplace. Because you go to work, you make money, you're under someone's authority, or you have authority over someone else. And each government has a clearly defined jurisdiction. I've already gone over that. What is the relationship between the church that we see in this passage and the government, the civil government that we see in this passage? Today, what is the relationship between us as the church and our county government, our state government, and our federal government? Some will tell you that the Constitution says there is a separation of church and state. I have read the entire Constitution, and if you haven't, you should. I need to do it again. You all, the separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. But most folks want you to think that it is. Most people want you to think that we, as God's people, don't have anything to say to the civil government. But this is not true. And there are many, including myself, years ago, who thought the government should stay out of politics. Well, if the church stays out of politics, who's going to keep the politicians in line, you all? They're supposed to make sure that evil is restrained and those who do evil are punished. The government can't change anyone's heart, but they can protect law-abiding citizens from those who do not follow the law, from those who seek to do undue harm. 
Here in Acts chapter 12, we have Herod using the sword against an innocent man. He is using his God-given authority to harm God's people who have done no wrong. He is supposed to use whatever means of coercion he has. You know, we've got guns, we've got other ways to coerce people and force people into doing things these days. But he is to use that power in a way that is just. But instead, he is using it to win political points with a bunch of other cowards. You all, we see this today. And we as the church, we need to call it out. We need to step into that realm and say, you may not act with injustice. You must quit playing favorites. You must do what is right. What you have done is evil, and you need to repent and run to Jesus Christ. Historically, in our nation, you all, the church has been the voice of God to the political realm. We've had a couple generations where we've stepped back away from that. We can't do that anymore. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting outside of this text into other passages of the Bible. Like I said, we don't have time to go to today. But this is relevant because of the days that we're living in. You all in our nation... We've had it pretty good for a long time. You all, our founding fathers, although they were imperfect in some ways, they did establish the longest-standing constitution, the longest-standing body of laws in the history of the world. No other constitution, no other system of law has lasted longer than this U.S. Constitution that is the law of our land these days. You all, they got quite a few things right back then but you know what the best parts of what they did are crumbling today and we see this in other nations we see this throughout history we see it a lot in other places and we haven't seen it as much here in our lifetime but that's changing quickly you all and I'm hearing you and you're concerned and I'm concerned too it's hard if you've been paying attention what you've seen Lost, you, you, you've, you've seen local and state governments come against churches with great power and great persecution to get them to stop worshiping because somebody might get sick. A virus that kills less than 99.6% of the general population has caused governments to go after people just like us and say, you can't do that. In Canada... Dozens of pastors have spent time in jail. I've followed closely the details of a few of them. One of their churches, let's see, this was January, February last year, they put up a fence around the facility for months and had armed guards all the way around it. The pastor spent 36 days in prison. He got, you know, you know what? the church was doing while he was in prison? They were meeting in other places. They would decide where to meet one week, Saturday night. People in the church would call each other and say, we're meeting here. And they wouldn't tell anyone else. And they would go meet there that Sunday. And then the next Saturday night, somebody would make the call, and they'd all go meet somewhere else. 
And it was broadcasted live on YouTube and everything. It was a beautiful thing. But you all, things are bad these days. You all, our civil government right now is usurping God's authority. They are redefining what it means to be a man. They're redefining what it means to be a woman. They have redefined the definition of marriage. They have taken one of the most simple and basic, beautiful things in all of God's creation, and they are perverting it and saying that it is something that they are not. Who gave them that authority? Who said they could rewrite God's dictionary? You all, we should be outraged. And we cannot be silent. People are going to hate you. They're going to hate me. They're going to hate us. We cannot be silent. They are claiming authority that only God alone has. And it is blasphemy. And if you want to know what's going to happen to everyone who does that, come in two weeks. Read the rest of chapter 12 and you'll see. I am glad that God judges his enemies. You all, right now, I just learned about this week because one of you sent me an email. Right now, there's something in our, in our U.S. Congress called the Respect for Marriage Act. It is currently in the Senate. The U.S. House of Representatives has already passed it. The Senate has to pass it, and then our president has to sign it. It will likely become law before the midterms. If it does become law then every institution that has a biblical view of marriage, every institution that says homosexuality is wrong, every institution that says men are men and women are women will lose their tax-exempt status and will have legal encouragement to sue us and to come after us. The majority of politicians in Washington want this. We will stand As I told you earlier today, before we came in this room, we will be victorious. Y'all, the battle's raging. The battle is coming. Reading Acts chapter 12 these last few weeks, this part of Acts has never been so relevant to us as it is today, you all. You all, if we let government become something that only happens in the civil realm... And if we neglect family government and church government and governing ourselves and restraining the evil in ourselves, if we reject that and don't do that, then our government at the state and federal level is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is not a new thing, you all. This has been happening. This has been happening. When our nation was first founded... And when you look at what the Bible teaches, it is a family's job to educate their children. Why did we ever let our government start doing it? It is our job to do that for our kids. The government has no God-given jurisdiction over educating young people. You all, when when there's a natural disaster that rolls through a community... What does the community do? Oh, the government will help. I need millions of dollars to rebuild our city. Why can't a local community put their city back together again, you all? Why do we have to expect the government to redistribute wealth and to act as one big insurance policy? Who gave the government that authority? But you know what? We've been okay with this 
we have been conditioned to think that it is their job. And it's not. We've made a bit of an idol out of the civil government. And we look to them in ways that we should not, expecting them to take care of us in ways that God never delegated, gave them the authority to do. Think about welfare. Who did welfare? Who kept track of things before uh, Roosevelt's New Deal? Y'all know who took care of poor folks 130 years ago? The church did. We did. Why were we okay with the government taking over our calling? And I I believe a clear case can be made that every decade, more and more of our lives are swallowed up by the federal beast in Washington. Y'all know what the beast of Revelation is? It's power-hungry, tyrannical governments is what it is. That's all I'm going to say about that. You all, I'm not bringing up all this today because I have a political agenda. I'm bringing up all this because we Christians have become lazy and we are entitled and there are things that we are supposed to be doing but we don't even realize it because our civil government is doing it all for us. I want to know why our great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents was okay with the government deciding that they were going to plan our retirement savings for us. Who gave them that authority? Our God certainly did not. Our God certainly did not. I want to quote a man named R.J. Rushduni. Y'all, he wrote this in 1971. What's that, over 50 years ago? Listen to this. Today, most Americans have lost their faith in Christ as Savior, and they expect civil government to be their Savior. They have no desire for the responsibilities of self-government, and so they say to politicians, Do thou please rule over us. Instead of Jesus Christ as their good shepherd, they elect politicians to be their shepherds on a program of socialistic security for all. You all, that was 51 years ago when that was said. I'm going to read it one more time. Today, most Americans have lost their faith in Christ as Savior, and they expect civil government to be their Savior. They have no desire for the responsibilities of self-government. And so they say to politicians, Do thou rule over us. Instead of Jesus Christ as their good shepherd, they elect politicians to be their shepherds on a program of socialistic security for all. So we've got a bloated politician back then. We've got him today. Y'all, what are we supposed to do? So James has been killed. Peter gets locked up, but it's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that's the seven days leading up to the Passover meal, and they're in Jerusalem. And so, you know, during that week of the year, there were a lot of things that were shut down. There were a lot of things they didn't do. They were very, very focused on on the way they worshipped during that week. And Herod was not going to have a trial or an execution during that time. So, there was a delay, right? Peter... It's just going to be locked up until next week. And next week, we have reason to believe that Herod is going to do the exact same thing to James that he's already done to Peter, right? How does the church handle this? How does the church handle Peter's arrest? You all, they prayed earnestly. We're going to talk about prayer for a bit. Verse 5 said, Peter was kept in prison, 
but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I want to ask you, what does it mean to do something earnestly? What do you do earnestly? You all, we are all earnest about something. You all, we all desire things. We all pursue things. We, all of us in here, we chase after something, don't we? You all, our problem is that we are often earnest about the wrong things. To be earnest means to do something with fervency. When I hear the word fervency, I think of heat. Something that just generates great heat. I was grinding or sharpening lawnmower blades this week. You know, it's going to be a few minutes before I... I, I'm going to wait a few minutes to touch them after I'm done grinding them, right? Because of that friction. To do something with earnestness has to do with doing something with passion, having to do something uh, with heat. It has to do with doing something constantly or without ceasing. You all, in next week's passage, we're going to see that the church is at a really long prayer meeting, much more than the hour that we're going to do Wednesday night. So they're at a really long prayer meeting. Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Pray without ceasing. Colossians 4.2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer. How do you do something without ceasing? How do you do something steadfastly? I want to submit this idea to you. It becomes such a part of who we are that we do it without even realizing that we're doing it. You're human and you breathe, right? A lot, right? And if you ever stop for very long, you notice it, right? I want our prayers to be like the breath going in and out of my lungs and my heart beating in my chest. You all, our prayers must be coming from us up to God so regularly that it is as necessary in order for us to live as it is for us to breathe in order to live. Are we a people who pray so constantly and regularly, so habitually, that it just flows from us? Y'all, I don't think any of us are where we want to be with that. I I, I want to grow in prayer, and I want to grow in prayer with you all. And good grief, if we don't pray, we're going to drown, just like we would die if we quit breathing. We are to pray without ceasing. To do something earnestly means to do it with intent, to do it intentionally. When you hunt, don't you aim at what you're trying to kill? You do. Every time, right? When Jesus healed people, he would often stretch out his hand towards them. That word, stretching out of the hand, is the same word translated earnest in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. What was Jesus doing when he stretched out his hand? He was grabbing someone intentionally to help them get up. It was focused. There were other things that were blocked out so he could grab the thing he was looking at. How many of y'all know that in order to look at something, you have to stop looking at other things, right? You all, we've got to get focused in our prayers. We've got to get intentional in our prayers. Do you remember the story? Um, the night before Jesus died, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And the guards come to arrest Jesus. Judas is leading the way. And Peter sees him. And Peter pulls out his sword. And he goes after one guy. And he got him right here. Chopped his ear off. His ear fell to the ground. The word it uses for Peter striking him with that sword is the same word earnest here. Peter was going for that guy's head. He knew what he was doing. He had a goal. He was focused. Do you have goals and focus in your prayer? Or are your prayers just vague or only when you feel like it? You all, we need to always be people who pray spontaneously. But if that's all that you're doing, then you're missing out on the life of prayer that God has called you to. You all, we must be a people of prayer who pray with intent, who pray with focus. We must do this. You all, I often think that we are like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane before those guards showed up and Peter cut off that poor guy's ear. Jesus had went to that garden to pray because he knew what was going to happen the next day. And while Jesus was praying, well, before Jesus started praying, Jesus told his disciples, y'all go over there and pray, and I'm going to go over here and pray. And while Jesus was praying, you know what the disciples did? Anybody know? They fell asleep, y'all. That's not what we're supposed to do. But in Luke twenty-two forty-four. The Bible says, being in agony, Jesus prayed more, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. One of the Greek words in there, he prayed more, is the same word in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. This was focused, planned prayer. Men, do you ask your families to come pray with you? Do you have times of your day or times of your week where you say it is time for us to pray and you lead them in prayer? Moms, do you do that with your kids? Do you all do that with your friends? How comfortable do you feel if you see someone you go to church with at Dollar General pulling them aside and saying, you know what, we need to pray for that right now? How comfortable do you feel doing that? It feels awkward the first time you've done it. I've had great fear in my life when I have felt like I needed to pray for someone in public. What are people going to think? And you know what I, we had, I had to do? Repent of that over and over and over again. You all, we are to be a praying people. Don't be afraid to pray. Don't be afraid to lead others in prayer. Grab folks and tell them, we need the Lord, and we are going to pray and talk to Him right now. Can we be that type of person? Can we be that type of church? When others are afraid and scared, when they don't know where next month's rent are going to come from, or when they don't know if their kid or their husband or their friend or whoever's ever going to come back from whatever their kid, husband, or friend is doing that they shouldn't be doing. Y'all, life is ugly and life is messy and people hurt us. Let's stop acting like we got it all together and let's pray with earnestness, you all. Let's pray with earnestness. All right, here's what we're going to do. How many of y'all did a better job and remembered to bring your prayer guide in here? Better job than me, that is. I didn't. Shame on me. All right, look at that thing. It has a front and a back. Thank you, guy. 
On the front, it says at the top, Hope Fellowship Prayer Guide. I've got a few things here, lessons on prayer, a couple scripture verses, and a couple quotes by some old dead guys who love Jesus. Look at the bottom of the front page. <clears throat> I have something here called the hard stuff. Here's what I'd like y'all to do. I want you to write down some hard stuff in your life that you need to pray for regularly. And I don't want to see anyone in here looking at the person beside you and what you're writing. Take a few moments. Think of the hard stuff. Write two or three or four of those things down. What desperately needs to change? What sin are you struggling with? What are you afraid of? What are you trying to figure out? What's something that you need for yourself? Write that down there. You know, I've noticed that we often fall into one of two extremes. Either we only pray for ourselves and we don't think about nobody else, or we almost think it's a wrong, a sin to pray for ourselves. And we don't ever ask God to do anything for us. We need to get some balance in there. What's the hard stuff in your life? We're not going to fill out this whole thing. But on the back, I've got a few categories. I've got two or three of these that I use each month. One of them I use with my family, and we don't use it every day, um, and, and I'd like us to use it more than we are, but it's becoming a habit. Me and the kids and Jennifer will write some things down on there, and we'll just pray for them frequently. We are doing this in an effort to do it earnestly. I've got one of these on here. I've got one of these that I keep in a special place that has things on there that only I've seen. My wife doesn't even know what's on there. Those are things for me. I'm not trying to hide it from her. I just haven't had any need to share it with her. But they are things that I pray when I'm by myself. And this is just something that I have felt the need for, for us so that we would pray well. Here's what I want us to do, you all. I want us to learn how to pray better as a church. I want us, more of us, to do it. I want more of us to come on Wednesday nights so we can have an extended time to do it together. That's this week. Bring your prayer guide with you. And would you bring your prayer guide when you come to church next week? Would you make it a habit to bring it with you? And you all, it's a tool. Y'all, I use tools every day. I used a lot yesterday. We all use tools. doesn't matter if it's a drill or a spatula. You use things to help you do stuff, don't you? And I want us to use this prayer guide to help us to pray with intent. Y'all, we don't go deer hunting and just start firing away without seeing a deer, do we? We wait. It's focused. And we aim. 
at what's most important, what we're trying to take home, right? This is a tool, this is a resource, this is a guide. With all that being said, I'd like to conclude there. And I would like us to pray. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of intercession. And then when we're done with that, I want us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. If you don't know the Lord's Prayer, uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. It's in there. But there's a form of it that a lot of us are familiar with because, you know, we've said it in church together. But I want us to pray that together with one voice today. So if you know that, when it's the right time, join me in praying that. If you don't know that, then listen and learn. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for this word and the truth of your word. We ask your mercy and kindness over us, O Lord, for we often fail to pray with earnestness and with intentionality. God, in many ways, we are babes in prayer. We have much growing up to do. But Lord, you are a perfect father and you are very happy to lead us and teach us these things. God, teach us how to pray about the hard stuff. God, I pray that some of us in here could begin to pray in ways that we've never prayed before. Lord, I pray that we would pray expecting you to answer those prayers and to do the things that we're asking you to do. And I pray, O Lord, that we would pray according to your will, according to your heart and your mind. I pray, O God, that we would pray in Jesus' name and not in our own name or in the name of some other person or idea or anything less than Christ. Oh God, you say in your word that we walk in the flesh, but we are not to wage war according to the flesh. I want you to teach us what that means. God, I pray that we would not wage war according to the flesh, and I pray that we would accept the fact that we are in a war. Lord, you say the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Oh, Lord, let us get familiar with those weapons. Let us see divine power in our lives. And we pray that evil, sinful, and demonic strongholds would come tumbling down. Y'all take a few moments and quietly to yourself, think about the biggest things in your life and in your world that just need to crumble and be demolished and ask the Lord to break those things right now. Ask him to break the cycles of fear. Ask him to break complacency. Maybe someone hurt you a long time ago and you're still dealing and struggling with all kinds of junk from that. Ask him to break that power that that thing has over you. Maybe you have some type of sin that something you indulge in in secret and you don't want to do it, but it seems to control you, it does control you, and you want it to change, ask God to break that sin. 
Ask God to bring a new and better season. Lord God, would you destroy strongholds? And I pray, O oh God, that we would destroy the arguments, the ungodly arguments, and every lofty, ungodly opinion raised against the knowledge of you. And I pray, O oh God, that we may take every thought captive to obey Christ. O oh Lord, may we be a faithful people. May we be faithful until the end. And O oh God, would you teach us how to pray? Now let's pray what we know is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You all, we can come to God in prayer because God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ, whose body was broken on that cross. He took the judgment and the anger and the wrath of God for us so that we could know our God again. In the same way that the bread was broke, the body was broken, Jesus' blood was poured out. And you all, his blood is sufficient to cover our sin. You all, this is a joyful thing to get to come to the table. Brother Guy, would you join me up here if you would? And we're going to come, and we're going to receive 